uh, do please keep your Bibles open. It would be a great help to me if you're uh, able to follow along uh, as we go through. As uh, uh, Colin said, that we're continuing our series looking at uh, Mark's Gospel. Uh, and this evening we have a very lengthy uh, account of Jesus' interactions with a man possessed by demons. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I read uh, Mark's Gospel with uh, people who aren't believers, uh, we get to uh, sections like this, uh, and I am usually met uh, with uh, disbelief. Uh, Sceptical friends uh, have a view that they've uh, moved on beyond thinking about uh, supernatural uh, evil. And, you know, likewise, you know, we, can, we can be tempted to be a bit embarrassed uh, by what Mark uh, and the other gospel writers have written, uh, or worse still, shrug our shoulders uh, and suggest to our friends that they don't need to take it seriously, and let's just uh, skip on uh, to the next bit. So what I want to do this evening is, as we look at this, just to equip us uh, to be able to uh, speak to people about it, and also to warm our own hearts uh, with the truths uh, that it contains. So I want to look at uh, uh, this <clears throat> across these uh, three areas. Firstly, the reality uh, of the demonic. Uh, second, Jesus calms the storm. And thirdly, uh, the response to Jesus. Fear or faith. So firstly, the reality uh, of the demonic. Uh, It's not a a topic, as we go through Mark's Gospel, that we can get away from, because three times, uh, as we journey through Mark's Gospel, uh, Mark brings us back to to this topic uh, again and again, uh, whether it's unclean spirits, uh, whether it's a demonic possession. Uh, So it's good for us uh, to look at uh, this uh, tonight. Now, the classic uh, objection uh, that I hear is that uh, the gospel writers, uh, they were, well, they were simple folk, uh, lacking the medical and psychological knowledge uh, that we moderns have. And as a result, uh, the things that uh, we know are medical conditions, well, those simple folk call it demonic possession. They just didn't have uh, the knowledge and understanding that we do. Uh, people today are well, better educated, uh, more sophisticated than the people of Palestine 2,000 years ago. But I want to say that that type of thinking that we know better these days, that type of thinking is very dangerous because it means that we actually underestimate evil. And the Bible gives us a really nuanced uh, and a much better informed of, uh, view of demons uh, and of the devil. Now, the gospel writers uh, were not naive. Uh, they knew the difference between medical illness and spiritual possession. Uh, Let me uh, have one cross-reference this evening. Uh, In Matthew's Gospel, where we have the healing ministry of Jesus uh, being uh, relayed to us, uh, we read this in Matthew 4, uh, speaking of Jesus. Uh, News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Matthew tells us uh, that the people of the time were able to discern the difference between pain, seizures, physical and mental ailments from demonic possession. So as we read the scriptures and the writers tell us about demon possession, well, we're on notice to take it uh, seriously. Uh, in his book, uh, the, the chap's not a, not a Christian, uh, in his book, The Death of Satan, uh, the academic writer, uh, Andrew Del Banco, uh, he charts uh, a view back over the past uh, 200 years, uh, and he has this notion that we have killed the notion 
of Satan. And in particular, over the past 100 years, how Western thinking in particular has put forward uh, all manner of notions to eradicate the idea of Satan and supernatural evil. And he notes that uh, what we've done is to see evil merely as a function of three things, by and large. What's in our minds, what's in our culture, and what's in our genes. And all that we have to do uh, is fix those three things. And there have been all sorts of ideas that, uh, um, that the people who do evil, for instance, uh, are f- uh, plagued by psychological trauma, for instance, uh, broken minds caused by bad upbringing or traumatic events, and that the ensuing evil uh, coming from those sorts of injuries uh, can be eradicated by counselling or by therapy. Then there's the notion that the evil that comes from uh, sociological factors, the way that society is organised, well, they can be eradicated by social programmes, you know, uh, law reform, uh, better education, and so on. Or there's the evil that comes from biology, biological derangement. So pharmacology here is the answer, treat with uh, drugs to, um, to get at those underlying conditions. But as Del Banco looked back at uh, the human efforts and the great strides that humanity had indeed made, he recognised that there was a persistence and a relentless growth in evil in the world. Uh, He recognised that there was no way that by human effort alone, uh, biological or psychological uh, or um, sociological uh, conditions, nothing could correct or contain the evil that was in the world. And he concluded that what we've done is we've stopped talking about and acknowledging the idea of the devil. You know, we might have killed the idea of the devil, but evil remains. And that there's something more than merely human agency that's at work in generating evil in the world. Now, and this has kind of gone on in the last 10 to 15 years, the way that our society has tried to deal with uh, the idea of uh, devil and evil, is actually perversely to look for something that's good in the demonic or in the evil. And with uh, growth in you know, this idea of general uh, spiritual spirituality, where there's no absolute divine God who's giving us and exp- revealing himself and giving us a sense of right and wrong, that with this general sense of spirituality, we've actually allowed evil to take on the persona of good. Yeah, the notion has grown that the devil and evil beings actually, well, they're not too bad. Or or, or maybe really that all that's happened is that the devil's had bad press. We have, if you like, we put lipstick on the devil and we pretend that the devil's misunderstood, that the devil can be a force uh, for good. Uh, And, you know, as we watch these programs, we actually find ourselves, maybe it's just me, we find ourselves rooting for the devil or the demons. And, and that's how it's uh, presented to our children and to our grandchildren as well, that the devil and the demons are actually harmless. They're fun. Or unfortunate people who do good things. But really, it's anything but harmless. You know, you speak with uh, recovering addicts, and you can see what it is to be confronted with real evil, to be enslaved by real evil. You can see it because it's just so overwhelmingly destructive in their lives. There's a force possessing them that is well beyond just the drugs 
A force that is relentlessly draining away hope, destroying relationships and all self-worth, reducing them to utter hopelessness. Uh, if you like, leaving them howling at the moon. And the Bible's also clear about the nuance uh, of the work of the devil. Uh, one of the errors that we can make is to see the devil in everything, to overly focus our attention on him. Uh, but a lot of the time, the evil that we do see uh, is simply a, a function of our own corrupt desires, our own jealousy, our own worry, our own pride. And the Bible says, you know, sometimes bad things happen because, because it's just us. It is just us. But the Bible also says that in some way, the devil will use the corruption of our own hearts to come in, to pervert, uh, entangle, uh, and confuse us. Uh, that those corruptions in our heart are like an open door through which the devil and his agents can come to amplify, uh, to magnify, to intensify, and to extend in some way that corruption in our hearts. So, for instance, in Ephesians 4, we're told that the devil can use anger as a foothold to come into our lives, uh, that he'll use our sinful behavior as a means by which he can try to gain a foothold to corrupt us further. So, unlike the world's view, the Bible has a rich and a clear-eyed and a subtle and nuanced view of evil, its existence, its reality, and its malevolent power. But it also, it also tells us of the one true living God who is powerful over all creation and is victorious over evil. And Mark helps us to see the power of Jesus over the demonic. And that is our second point. Jesus calms the storm. Now, in verse 1 of our reading, we see that uh, Jesus and the disciples cross over the lake into the region called Gerasene. It seems like such a uh, small statement, an innocuous statement to make. But Mark, in this statement, he's uh, telling us uh, all sorts of things that we really, really do need to know. Uh, Jesus has uh, left the shores uh, of the people of Israel, and he's come to a place that's populated by Gentiles. Uh, Gentiles were viewed by the Jews at the time as being completely unclean. Mark tells us that there's an encounter with an unclean spirit. There's a man who lives amongst the tombs under Jewish law that made him ceremonially unclean. And the place that Jesus has stepped into, they are raising pigs, an animal deemed to be unclean and couldn't be eaten by the people of Israel. And the pigs that were raised there were being used to feed the Roman army, adding insult to injury, a double insult and uncleanness. As Jesus calms the storm on the lake, he steps onto the shore of this unclean place and he's confronted with another storm, a storm that's been caused by an untold number of demons. And so as we come to this encounter, Mark's inviting us uh, to consider what he's told us and to see what it means for who Jesus is. Jesus has already displayed great power to heal. He's cast out demons uh, and even controls nature. And Mark told us in the very opening verse, didn't he, of his gospel, that this is a gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But what does it mean for the world beyond the borders of Israel? Jesus may be the Son of God, but is he only powerful in Israel? Is the kingdom of God only for the land ruled by Israel's kings of old? 
Now, a few weeks ago, uh, Phil preached on the challenge of the scribes who thought that Jesus was using the demons to cast out demons. So the question is, that was in Israel. What about outside the borders of Israel? Would they, the demons, be subject to the rule and reign of Jesus as the Son of God? And this encounter helps answer that question. So what does Jesus uh, encounter in this territory? We find one of the most pitiful descriptions of any person in the Bible. Now take a look with me at verses 3 through 5. We read this. Uh, This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills... He would cry out and cut himself with stones. Uh, This man's possession by demons had resulted in behavior which had exhausted the compassion of the local community. And his condition had gone beyond the community's ability to care for him and help him. And so he found himself utterly rejected and abandoned by his community. And they felt he was a danger, so they attempted to restrain him. And now he'd grown Such strength that even the chains couldn't hold him. The spirits that possessed him had driven him from the land of the living. And he now existed, not lived, existed amongst the decaying bones of the dead. Tormented by the spirits that lived in him, having lost all hope, he's ended up howling at the moon and harming himself. All alone, he has no one to love and no one to love him. This man was beyond the power of the community to help him. This man was beyond having any hope in his own power to get him out of the situation that he was in. The demons possessed the man, and through that possession, they were utterly destroying him, taking from him everything that it meant to be human. They were taking his very life from him. In a foreign land and in an unclean place, This man meets Jesus. Take a look at verses 6 to 10 with me. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want from me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What's your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out. Of the area. The man comes face to face with Jesus, the man possessed with many demons, a legion of demons, which uh, a Roman legion is five to six thousand people, so he's riddled with more demons than we could count. And to this man of incredible physical strength, a simple word from Jesus calling the demons out was enough to bring him to heal. And it's noteworthy, isn't it, that the, the demons they know who Jesus is, the Son of the Most High God. And notice what they say to him. They appeal to Jesus. They appeal to Jesus. They try to bind Jesus so that he will not harm the demons, so that he will not torture them. The demons are actually trying to exercise the power out of Jesus. They're trying to drive out the power from him, the power that uh, they know that he has over them. Uh, But Jesus' response is very simple. He has no chant, no spell, no incantation, 
No appeal to a higher power, no secret word, no convoluted formula, no catchwords. He just, as he did with the sea, he speaks and what he's spoken happens. There's no appeal to a higher power because Jesus is the Son of God who has all power. Now, a few weeks ago, Phil opened up uh, the passage in Mark 3 where the scribes uh, suggest that Jesus was using the power of the devil to perform his miracles. And Jesus had explained that he was more powerful than any demon and more powerful than Satan because Jesus is the stronger man. He's the true strong man. And here we see the stronger man, the strong man at work. The demons, even a legion of demons, have no power over Jesus. Jesus doesn't break a sweat. He simply speaks, and countless demons are cast aside, unable to escape from his power and authority. And here we see the teaching of Jesus uh, in Mark revealed in the work of Jesus. We see that the armies of Satan have no power over Jesus. Therefore, Satan has been defeated. Jesus is the strong man. And just as... uh, With a word as Jesus calmed the sea, here with a word Jesus calms the storm of the demons. They could do nothing but beg for mercy. And just as the demons in the land of Israel were subject to Jesus, so demons outside the land of Israel, outside the borders of Israel, are subject to Jesus. So Mark's showing us that there is no place, there is no place that is not under the lordship, control and power and authority of the Lord Jesus. Now, having commanded uh, the demons to leave the man, they beg for another place to go. And they beg him, beg Jesus, to allow him to go, uh, allow them to go into the, the herd of 2,000 pigs that were nearby. And he allows them to do that. Take a look with me uh, down at verse 13. Uh, he gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. That once the demons enter the pigs... The pigs go wild, and they rush uncontrollably over a steep bank and are drowned. Now, there is clear irony here that Mark is, uh, is revealing to us, that before this encounter, Jesus had rescued the disciples uh, from a raging storm uh, in the lake, and here on an unclean land, he calms the storm inside this man and drives the spirits back into the lake to be drowned. The demons are destroyed, the man is saved. The danger is that we can, or at least our friends can, get caught in thinking that it's a bit unfair on the pigs. It's a bit rum for them, isn't it? Uh, and that's because we've been trained with a kind of cartoon strips, with animation, uh, with uh, films, uh, that there's, uh, if you like, uh, an anthropomorphic uh, presentation of pigs, making them uh, look like cuddly People or pigs that can do amazing things, uh, pigs that uh, amuse us, or we have pigs as pets. So when we hear of an account of 2,000 pigs being killed by drowning, you know, our hearts kind of reach out uh, for them. Our modern sensibilities are offended, aren't they? But at the time that Mark was writing, the people who read this account held pigs in the same esteem as we might a rat that carried fleas, causing bubonic plague. But the point, the point of this is that the man is worth more to Jesus 
than thousands of pigs. And indeed, in the crucifixion, we see that each one of us, made in the image of God, is more valuable than anything in all creation. But we mustn't lose sight of the effect of what Jesus has done. He's calmed at the sea. We find here the man completely calmed. We read in verse 15 that the man is seated, he's dressed, and he's in his right mind. The work of the demons and the work of Jesus are completely opposite one another. The demons had come into this man and they'd robbed him of all life, all hope, all dignity. And Jesus has come and done what the man could never do, done it by grace. He's rescued him from death. Jesus has restored him and given him life. Jesus has taken this man from the land of the dead into the land of the living. This is amazing, isn't it? This work of this work of Jesus is well, it's just beyond imagination. It's captivating. But it demands a response. It's not just something that happens in abstraction. It demands a response. And that's our final point. The response to Jesus. Fear or faith. Now, as a result of Jesus' ministry in this place, uh, Mark shows us, in contrast, uh, the two responses, the two responses that the proclamation and the demonstration of the saving power of Jesus can have on people. So let's take a look uh, at those responses. Uh, the demonic has had the demons that possessed him um, removed. He's been freed. The man has regained life. He no longer dwells in the land of the dead. Having met with Jesus, he now finds himself sitting in his right mind before Jesus, before the one who gave him new life. At his response to what Jesus has done, it's clear, isn't it? He has his eyes fixed on Jesus. And Mark tells us this man, he's sitting there. Have a look in verse 15. Uh, He's sitting there in his right mind, he's dressed at the feet of Jesus. That's That's the position, that's the posture of a disciple. Someone who seeks to put all things aside and follow It's not simply looking, but trusting. Trusting Jesus and living for him. It's not merely academic assent. It's not sterile mental assent. It's sort of, yeah, 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 yeah. I I, I get it. I know who you are, Jesus. I know what you've done. Let me crack on with the things I want to do. No. It's a wholehearted, life-giving and life-surrendering desire to obey and follow the one who has given us everything. Now this man now begs Jesus that he should follow Jesus wherever he goes. Here's a man who can see what's been done and he responds joyfully. It's incredible, isn't it? He seeks to offer back to Jesus that incredible gift that Jesus has just given to him. He can't offer it back quick enough or with more love or with more desire. And there's the response of the local community. In verse 16, take a look with me. And we're told that those people who saw what had happened went and told the people in the community of the healing of the demon-possessed man. Oh, and the pigs as well. 
And in verse 17, we read that they came to Jesus. And they also pleaded with him. It's the same word that was used to describe the plea from the heart of the man who was possessed by demons. It's the same intensity and desire from the community as they plead with Jesus. But these people, having seen with their own eyes, seeing the man healed and the pigs destroyed, well, they plead with Jesus not to follow him, but the exact opposite. They plead Jesus leaves them. Why? And we see that at the end of verse 15. Take a look with me. And you look down, you see they begged him to go because they were afraid. They were afraid. And those are the only two intellectually honest approaches that we can have when we meet Jesus or when anybody meets Jesus. Those are the only two intellectually honest approaches. To see who Jesus is, either you bow the knee and you say to Jesus, command me. Or you see the power and authority of Jesus and you are filled with fear and you run from him. To worry that what Jesus will ask of me are things that I will, I'm just not willing to do. Uh, I will not give up the things that my heart is set upon. Uh, whether it's money or social standing, uh, job security, the applause of the crowd, personal comfort. Whatever it is, a refusal to give that up for Jesus. To worry that if I follow this Jesus, what will I lose? What will I have to give up? Now, for the people in the Decapolis, seeing their pigs bobbing up and down in the lake, uh, perhaps they were fearful that Jesus would call them to live in a different way. They, they just didn't know what that might be, and they were afraid. With Jesus in their midst, all manner of things could change. And for many of our friends and our family, like the pig herders, it'll be the perceived cost of following Jesus that will deter them. Ken Clark, not the politician, but the 20th century historian, uh, had a BBC show, 13 episodes, called Civilization, uh, ran in the late 60s. Uh, he wrote a biography, uh, quite a chunky one, and in volume two of his biography, uh, he writes about a moment where he tasted something of the sweetness and the love of God. But, he notes that when he considered the cost, and for him it was just the embarrassment of having to tell people that he was trusting in Jesus, he turned down the invitation to follow Jesus. He writes beautifully, so it's probably worth uh, just listening uh, to what he said. Uh, he writes this, and I quote, uh, I was uh, living in a villa near Florence uh, in solitude, Surrounded by books on the history of religion, which have always been my favorite reading. Uh, this may help to account for a curious episode that took place on one of my stays in the villa. I had a religious experience. Uh, it took place in the church of San Lorenzo, but didn't seem to be connected with the beauty of the architecture. I can only say that for a few minutes, my whole being was irradiated by a kind of heavenly joy far more intense than anything I had known before. 
This state of mind lasted for several months. And wonderful though it was, it posed an awkward problem in terms of action. Uh, My life was far from blameless. I would have to reform. My family would think I was going mad. And perhaps, after all, it was a delusion, for I was in every way unworthy of receiving such a flood of grace. Gradually, the effect wore off, and I made no effort to retain it. I think I was right. I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. But that I had felt the finger of God, I am quite sure. And although the memory of this experience has faded, it still helps me understand the joy of the saints. It's incredible. He says he felt the finger of God. He encountered God just for a few minutes, but it had the power to completely change his heart for months. But he felt that the the cost of following Jesus, which for him was just the ridicule that he would face from people, was too great a price. The value of a herd of pigs in his life, well, that was the cost of social standing that he enjoyed. And the fear of giving that up meant that he pleaded that Jesus would leave. Ken Clark brushed against the goodness of God, but hadn't realized, hadn't realized just what it had cost Jesus to extend that flood of grace to him, all because of Jesus' mercy. And seeing that changes everything. What the demoniac and the people of the region hadn't yet seen was that the gift of life that was being extended to them came at a huge price. We know that, and Ken Clark knew that. It was a price that was paid by Jesus. You see, the demoniac, he had been rejected by the community because of the harm that he was causing. But Jesus was rejected by those he came to, the ones he came to save. The demoniac had been cutting himself and he'd been bleeding in utter desperation. But Jesus allowed himself to be pierced in his hands and in his feet, his side with a spear, with blood pouring out, not in desperation, but in love for me and for you, for each one of us. Now, the forces of evil were taken from the demoniac because all of the wrath of God fell onto Jesus in our place. When Jesus, too, was stripped naked and he wasn't just sent to live around the tombs, he was killed and he was placed in a tomb so that through the loss of his life, we can enjoy eternal life. He tasted death so that we might have life. He showed us mercy, but it meant that he bore the penalty of our rebellion. And he did that willingly. He did that willingly because he wants you and he wants me with him, not just now, but throughout all eternity. Not as servants, but as his dear children. And if Jesus is prepared to do that for us, we know that this is a king that we can trust. That no matter what Jesus calls us to do, we can be sure it's for 
us. It's, uh, it's because of his love for us. That no matter what the price he asks us to pay, the trial that he calls us to endure, the valley of darkness he calls us to walk through, is nothing, is nothing compared to the price that Jesus paid to have you and to have me with him. So we can trust him because he is merciful. So I have a question to pose to close. What's our response? What's our response? Where in our own lives do we find ourselves afraid of what Jesus might invite us to do? Where are we shrinking back from where he's calling us to follow? Are there areas of our lives where we plead for Jesus not to come? Maybe dark areas of our hearts, ungodly practices or behaviours. Or maybe, like Ken Clark, our hearts have grown cold. So, as we come to communion this evening, as we remember Christ's body broken for us, his blood poured out for us, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. And uh, in that time, let's use it as a time to take inventory of our own hearts and our own minds. Ask the Spirit to cast his light broadly across our lives. Ask him to bring those areas where we would like to grow in trust. Where we would long to know the goodness and love of the Father. For God to provide us with the courage and the strength that we need. That we might taste afresh the wonder of what has been done for us and who we are because of that. And lean, lean into God's arms as you do that. So let me close in prayer now. There'll be a time of a couple of minutes or so just for us to reflect. And then Colin will come up and lead us in communion. So let me just uh, pray for us and then give us some space uh, to do that inventory. To consider our response. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, so much uh, for this evening. Thank you that uh, the Lord Jesus is the King of kings, that he is the one who is powerful above all things. And Father, thank you that he laid his glory aside to bring us back. Help us see the glory and the majesty in that. Help us see and know your love in our hearts. Would you, by your spirit, pour that love into our hearts? Give us the strength that we need not to be frightened, but to run into your arms. Place in our hearts a desire to live for you and not for the things of this world, the things that are temporal, the things that are passing away, but to have our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus, a desire to offer back to you all that you have given to us. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.